Hey listeners, before we get started with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about some fun changes we've made to our Undeceptions Plus subscriptions this year. We've added a bit more for the Keeny Beanies. We've planned a few extra singles episodes just for Plus subscribers that we'll scatter across the year. We've already dropped one of them, so there's that waiting for you. We're also planning a few live podcast events in Australia and the US in the next year. And plus, subscribers get first option on tickets and they get a discount. You'll be the first to know. And we've added a new level of support. So if you're a diehard fan of the show, you might like to check that out. It'll get you all the existing benefits, plus a personalized message from me, which producer Kaylee tells me people actually want, and you'll get messages from the team and the opportunity to participate in a few Undeceptions recording sessions, like what's going on here right now. You'll literally be online with me and the team as I record my lines. It'll be embarrassing for me, but maybe some fun for the team and for you. As always, we are grateful for your support of the podcast. It's an expensive show to run, and we're always looking for ways to make it bigger and better. Your Undeceptions Plus subscription allows us to do just that. So head to undeceptions.com forward slash plus to become a subscriber today. Okay, on with the show. Deceptions Podcast. Let's begin with a trip to first century Samaria. Picture a well on a hillside where Jesus is meeting a woman no one wants anything to do with. I have not revealed myself to the public as the Messiah. You are the first. It would be good if you believed me. You picked the wrong person. I came to Samaria just to meet you. (laughs) Do you think it's an accident that I'm I'm here in the middle of the day? I am rejected by others. I know, but not by the Messiah. That's a scene from the immensely popular crowd-funded production, The Chosen. We've featured it once before. It's one of director Mark's faves. Apparently, he doesn't just watch sci-fi. And this is arguably one of its most moving scenes, an interpretation of Jesus meeting the woman at the well, as it's often called. Part of the emotional power of this scene is in the acceptance of a woman the rest of the world seems to have rejected. She's a woman. She's Samaritan. She's a social outcast. But part of the power also comes from who it is that's accepting her, God's chosen one, the Christ, the Messiah. Jews and the Samaritans both believed God would one day send a deliverer who would restore his people and lead them into an age of peace. Peace with each other, peace with the earth, and peace with God himself. And it was that prophet, that representative of God on earth, who was offering this woman at the well a place in God's kingdom. That's the point at the heart of this episode. 
We can look at Jesus as an incredible teacher, arguably the most influential in history. We could see him as a social revolutionary or a healer, miracle worker, and all of that would be true. But if we leave it there with Jesus simply as a first century teacher and healer, we've plucked him out of his true context. We've ripped the foreground away from the background, the New Testament away from the Old Testament. So today, we're going to try and put these things back together. We're going to explore the controversial claim, certainly controversial to any Jewish listeners, and perhaps unbelievable to my skeptical listeners, the claim that the Jesus of the New Testament Gospels, in fact, inhabits all the pages that came before him. Every story, every prophecy, every ritual, every law of what Christians call the Old Testament. I sometimes meet people who tell me they are New Testament Christians, by which I think they mean they just stick with Jesus and don't worry about all that spooky stuff in the Old Testament. Or else I sometimes meet people who wouldn't call themselves Christians at all, but who insist that while Jesus and the New Testament are probably admirable, the sooner we forget the Old Testament, the better. The fact is, though, there's no such thing as a New Testament Christian. And while I get the popular skepticism about parts of the Old Testament, I find myself convinced by the arguments of our guest today. Christ isn't just the hero of the New Testament. He is everywhere in the Old Testament. I'm John Dixon, and this is Undeceptions. Undeceptions is brought to you by Zondervan Academics Master Lectures. It's a streaming service to satisfy your curiosity and help you understand the Bible and a bunch of other stuff with the world's leading Christian scholars. And you can head to zondervanacademic.com forward slash undeceptions to get 50% off your first three month subscription with the code undeceptions50. I can't recommend this enough. Each episode of Undeceptions, we explore some aspect of life, faith, history, science, culture, ethics, literature, or philosophy, yes, I'm adding to this list daily, that's either much misunderstood or mostly forgotten. With the help of people who know what they're talking about, we're trying to undeceive ourselves and let the truth out. And if this hour of undeceiving isn't enough for you, become an undeceiver by joining the Undeceptions Plus community for just $5 Aussie a month. That's $3.25 where I now live. You'll get extended interviews with my guests, bonus Q&A sessions, and access to our exclusive Undeceptions Plus Facebook community, where you can hear more from me if you really want to, and the team, and get to know other listeners. Head to undeceptions.com forward slash plus for more info. This episode of Undeceptions is brought to you by Zondervan Academics' new book, The Truth in True Crime, What Investigating Death Teaches Us About the Meaning of Life, by acclaimed cold case homicide detective Jay Warner Wallace. After years of investigating the causes behind deaths and murders, 
chasing leads and solving crime. Wallace decided to focus some of those same instincts on the most notable death in human history, the death of Jesus. And while a few of Wallace's cases remain open, unsolved mysteries, the death of Jesus obviously wasn't one of them. His investigation transformed him from atheist to believer. Many of us are hooked on the latest true crime podcast. I'm looking at you, my darling buff. But Wallace reckons there's more than mere entertainment to be found in some of the big murder mysteries of his career. The Truth in True Crime offers some of the lessons Wallace has learned about human nature from both his murder investigations and ancient biblical wisdom. It's a cool idea for a book. You can pre-order your copy of The Truth in True Crime by J. Warner Wallace now on Amazon, of course. Or, even better, head to zondervanacademic.com forward slash undeceptions. Don't forget to write forward slash undeceptions. zondervanacademic.com forward slash undeceptions. And you look like you are as well. Yeah. Keeping well. Did you know I'm uh, moving to the US? No. Oh, wait, I did know. That's right. Wheaton. Wheaton College. That's right. I remember, <laughs> I t- I've told some people at Wheaton what a good move that is. It's late morning Australian time in the lead up to my move to America. And I'm having a virtual chat with Professor Tremper Longman III. Apart from that very cool name, Tremper is an Old Testament scholar, Emeritus Professor of Biblical Studies and Distinguished Scholar of Biblical Studies at Westmont College in Santa Barbara, California. He has a doctorate in Ancient Near Eastern Studies from Yale University, and he's written or co-authored more than 20 books on history and historiography, while serving as a consultant on popular translations of the Bible, like the little-known but much-loved Holman Standard Bible. I've got to ask you about what you do as an Old Testament scholar um, or how you describe it to others. Let's imagine you're at a lovely dinner party. I know how much you and I both like good food and wine. And uh, someone who doesn't believe says, oh, what do you do? Hmm. How do you explain? You know, it's funny, John. I've been in that situation many times, and I say I am a professor of biblical studies and then uh, say Old Testament studies. And to be honest, even with my um, non-believing secular friends, it's kind of like, well, that's very interesting. (laughs) Why would you go into that field? And um, they think it's interesting because Here in Washington, D.C. area where I live, everybody else is a lawyer. So (laughs) it's kind of a different thing. But (laughs) but on the other hand, I, uh, you know, I talk about how the Old Testament is not only fascinating from a historical literary perspective, but it's also really important from a theological perspective perspective and that Tremper's fascination uh, is on full display as one of the contributors to the newly published Five Views of Christ in the Old Testament, genre, authorial intent, and the nature of scripture. His view among the five views is described as the Christotelic view, something we'll hear more about later. The five views was written to discuss a lively debate about how Christ relates to the 39 books of the Old Testament. 
Let's change to the, to the Christian who says to you, oh, I'm doing perfectly well in my faith, loving God, loving neighbor, but I never read the Old Testament because I'm really a New Testament Christian. Well, first of all, I'll often tell them, you're like my father who went to a movie. And uh, when I was young, my father would take me and my sisters to a movie, but he never checked the time when it started. So sometimes we... I remember one James, early James Bond movie, this would have been the 60s, where we went and there was 20 minutes left. And it was really, really exciting, but I had no idea what was going on. And I would tell them that really, you know, the Old Testament is 77% of the Bible. There are indeed a lot of obstacles for us as 21st century Western Christians to deal with as we study the Old Testament, but it really is the all-important backstory to Christ. You really can't understand Christ. After all, it's talking about creation, the fall, and the history of redemption, which leads up to Christ. There is a 21st century awkwardness about the Old Testament. The creation story, the large-scale miracles and massacres, the apparently low view of women, and some pretty strange laws. Tremper gets the hesitation many of us feel. Sure, I, I do. I, but part of me wants to also say you should feel awkward about the New Testament, too. <laughs> There's a lot in the New Testament that doesn't <laughs> comport with your 21st century values. And indeed, uh, uh, there's a lot more unity and coherence between the Old Testament and the New Testament than you probably think because you're likely kind of sanitizing the New Testament message as well as uh, struggling with the Old Testament. But I, but I do have uh, sympathy and understanding for why it's more difficult for Christians. One of the effective arguments of the new atheists, um, some would say you know, the only effective argument of the new atheists 10 or 15 years ago, was their claim that the God of the Old Testament was a vindictive, genocidal narcissist. And I, I've met uh, people who have abandoned any kind of faith precisely because of this argument. Um, what do you say to this claim about the God of the Old Testament? Well, I would say it's a stereotype and it is um, uh, misrepresenting the God of the Old Testament, but picking up on some truths of the Old Testament, that God is a God who judges sin, who uh, never is genocidal. I mean, there's not like this particular ethnicity or race I'm going to eradicate. It's uh, and even when it comes to the Canaanites, it's not a matter of racial or ethnic, but it's the type of obscene religion that they practice uh, in the land that they, that God rightly is concerned about uh, the fact that his people might be attracted to it, the kind of, um, you know, perverted, sexual, and... Um, and and other kind of practices. I mean, not to say that there aren't uh, ethical issues that I continue to feel about some aspects of the Old Testament, 
but but I think that one of the reasons why you know it's kind of paradoxical actually as I think about it because the whole God is a judge presentation is related to the issue of justice. And on the one hand, 21st century people, Westerners are big on justice, but somehow they feel repelled by the fact that God exercises justice from his position. I, though I was telling somebody, um, it's interesting to kind of chart the trajectory of ethical concern about I've been working on the issue of God as a warrior since 1980. And until 9-11, no one really, well, except for the kind of peace churches, no one really was troubled by the idea that God judged sinful people. But at 9-11, it became problematic because people thought they saw a connection between what somebody like Osama bin Laden was saying and what, say, the book of Joshua is doing. But I've also noted Tremper is referring to parallels drawn after 9-11 between the extremist ideology of Osama bin Laden and the ideology expressed at God's command against the Canaanite nations in the Old Testament books of Deuteronomy and Joshua. It's a huge topic. We've talked about it in passing many times before. And yes, we're going to do a whole episode on it. In the meantime, check out another book Tremper has contributed to. It's called Show Them No Mercy. We've also got some food for thought in episode 55 of Undeceptions just last year, titled Just War. Anyway, then there are those scary songs in the book of Psalms. Psalm 109. Appoint someone evil to oppose my enemy. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he's tried, let him be found guilty. May his prayers condemn him. May his days be few. May another take his place of leadership. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from their ruined homes. May a creditor seize all he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his labour. May no one extend kindness to him or take pity on his fatherless children. May his descendants be cut off, their names blotted out from the next generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord. May the sin of his mother never be blotted out. May their sins always remain before the Lord, that he may blot out their name from the earth. But I've also noted an interesting, more recent turn uh, that I was talking to my uh, priest. I'm an Anglican, and I was um, talking to my priest after he preached on Psalm 109, which contains a rather dramatic imprecation or curse. And he brought in Vladimir Putin. And I said, you know what? It's a lot easier to talk about God's judgment in the light of, you know, somebody like Vladimir Putin, who is doing such atrocities in Ukraine. And and I also, I won't take the time, uh, but I could, if you wanted me to, uh, quote Miroslav Volf, the... Uh, the wonderful Yale theologian who grew up in the former Yugoslavia and so, saw such atrocities there. And he has a really uh, moving statement about how in the light of those atrocities, he couldn't believe in God unless 
God was a God of judgment. Miroslav Volf is a friend of the show, and he's known for cutting through the Western aversion to a judgmental God. Here's how he puts it, read by our favourite voice actor, Yannick Laurie. I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love, and God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed, my people shelled, day in and day out, some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century, where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. Whoa. Back to Tremper and some other problems with the Old Testament. I want to just hover around the striking differences people confront between the the kind of literature the Old Testament is compared to the New Testament. So the New Testament like feels safe because it's like historical biographies and letters mainly, <laughs> right? Yeah. And we know those, we know those genres. Yeah. But why is there almost nothing like that in the Old Testament? And what are those weird genres in the <laughs> Old Testament? Yeah, so um, so though I would broaden the uh, genre of historical biography to say, you know, theological history. So you have Genesis through Esther, which isn't all that dissimilar from, say, generically from uh, Gospels and Acts. We don't have any book which is a letter, though there are a couple letters embedded in historical books. Uh, but we have the wonderful book of Psalms, which is a collection of, uh, you can call them poems or prayers or, or um, songs. You got wisdom books like Proverbs that are helping you become wise, which on one level means emotionally intelligent and also um, ethical as well as uh, fearing God. And the prophets, um, they, they're, I mean, again, if you're interested in justice, social justice, you wanna read the prophets. They're, they're calling Israel to task for their um, systemic abuses of the poor and others. And uh, well, you also have 
uh, Daniel. Uh, what strikes us is a weird apocalyptic book, but then again, uh, you have Revelation in the New Testament. And I just wrote, my most recent book came out two months ago, is uh, Revelation Through Old Testament Eyes. So, um, so yeah, so people often kind of, if they're, if they have trouble with the Old Testament, they usually end up having trouble with the book of Revelation and certain apocalyptic parts of the New Testament as well. I'm sure that's true. But do you have sympathy for those who say the Old Testament, I mean, just the little rundown you gave of the different uh, literary styles is just too much hard work. <laughs> You're right. It does take harder work because we are distanced from the Old Testament chronologically. Uh, we're distanced from the Old Testament uh, even more than the New Testament, uh, culturally. It's an ancient Near Eastern text. We're distanced from it redemptive historically because, yeah, it does make, uh, there is a major uh, transformation that happens when Christ appears and fulfills much of the Old Testament. So, and it's also, as I say, it's 77% of your Bible. So it's long and there are multiple genres and, you got to learn how to read those multiple genres. I suppose it's not fast food, right? <laughs> it's uh... it's not it's not fast food, and um, and the New Testament shouldn't be either, right? It's uh, uh -huh. <laughs> I, I I think sometimes I I get worried. It's a very well, I'll say American since I'm American, but it might be a, a Western thing that the Bible ought to be is. Uh, should be, and I will expect it to be immediately accessible to me and easy to understand. And now, on the other, you know, I want to emphasize the fact that the important, the really important things that are essential to salvation are easy to understand in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. For instance, it's really, really clear and not hard to understand that Genesis 1 and 2 is telling us that God created everything, including human beings. But what's not perfectly clear and, and uh, is, is whether or not Genesis 1 and 2 is telling us anything about how God created everything. I would say it's pretty clear that it's not, but other people want to say that it is. And I think that leads to all kinds of problems. We've talked a lot about Genesis here at Underceptions. Mark Hadley is scowling at me as I say that. So I'm not going to unpack it in this particular episode. Producer Kaylee is going to put some helpful links in the show notes to get you started. But I wanted to ask Tremper about a broader question concerning the Old Testament and Jesus. Did Jesus even have an Old Testament? The first question really is, are you sure that he even had in his possession in the first century what we call the Old Testament. And are we sure he loved it? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm sure he had it. I, and here's, here's why I think he had it and why, you know, there's differences between our Catholic and Orthodox brothers and sisters about the extent of the Old Testament. 
and I respect them, and but I disagree with them. I think the just a quick chime to say that the Old Testament used by the Roman Catholic and Orthodox churches has half a dozen extra books that you don't find in the Protestant Old Testament: Tobit, Judith, one and two Maccabees, Ben Sirah, and so on. These books were never in the early Hebrew versions of the Old Testament, and that's why Jews don't have these books either. But they were in the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. And the Catholic Church maintained those books because from the earliest centuries, most Christians spoke Greek and used that slightly larger Greek Old Testament. Back to Tremper. What Jesus embraced as the Old Testament was as the Hebrew Bible uh, was the narrower Protestant canon, and that's because um, Jesus, uh, with his many disagreements with the Pharisees, doesn't seem to disagree about uh, the scope or what is Scripture, and we know from a lot of evidence what the Pharisees accepted as scripture, and it is essentially what is exactly uh, the Protestant Old Testament. So, so uh, yeah, so Jesus, um, Jesus does affirm the Old Testament, and I never see him rejecting anything in the Old Testament. Now, there's some interesting comments that I think we ought to pay attention to. What comes to immediately to mind is Matthew 19, when um, when he's being asked about divorce, and he says, divorce should only happen in the matter of sexual infidelity. And uh, the response is, that's not what Moses said. But notice what Jesus says, he doesn't say Moses was wrong. I think it's Deuteronomy 24. He doesn't say you misunderstand Moses. He says, Moses said that because of the hardness of your heart. So on some issues like divorce, and I would throw in say slavery, polygamy and patriarchy, um, uh, God takes the people where they are and moves them toward his creation ideal. So, um, so, but, but there's nothing in the New Testament where you would see Jesus uh, disputing the Old Testament. Yeah, I mean, one passage that is misunderstood is the... Um you have heard that it was said, yeah, right. But I right. tell you, yeah, and this right. is in in Christ in Christianese. Yeah. This is translated as that Old Testament got it wrong, and I'm here to save right. you from it. Right. Jesus taught, "You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek." Turn to them the other cheek also. You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. 
But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Matthew chapter 5, 38-48 well, uh, What I think he's saying there, since the Old Testament does talk about lust in the Tenth Commandment, you know, you should not covet your neighbor's wife, and, uh, you know, I would say that what Jesus is disputing, what you've heard your rabbis say, as opposed to what the Old Testament teaches and God wants from you. Jesus that makes sense. Jesus didn't say, you've read in your Bibles, but I'm here to tell you. He says, you have heard that it was said about those passages, but I tell you. He's not against the Jewish scriptures themselves, but the interpretation of those scriptures among the Pharisees especially. But Christianity has traditionally said much more than that Jesus liked the Old Testament and used it from time to time. Christianity has always said, apart from a couple of wobbles in the second century I'll mention later, but it has nearly always said that the Old Testament is in a sense about Jesus. It foreshadows his life, teaching, healings, death and resurrection. The Gospel of Matthew, for example, presents Jesus coming as a fulfillment of centuries old predictions. Matthew chapter 1, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us, a classic Christmas verse. Or chapter two, so Joseph got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord said through the prophet, out of Egypt, I called my son. And there are many more besides. The New Testament writers came to see Jesus as the fulfillment of God's message to humanity. One of the spookiest Old Testament passages fulfilled by Jesus is from the book of Isaiah, written centuries before Jesus. It's in chapter 53. It speaks of a suffering servant in whose suffering God's purposes unfold. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Isaiah 53. 
But we're talking about more than just prophecies in this episode. That's a kind of piecemeal way to approach the Old Testament, as if it's all about a kind of Nostradamus prediction. Theologians like Tremper call our attention to prefigurements of Christ, like the mighty King David or the powerful prophet Elijah. These are types that would one day find their quintessence in Jesus. And there are foreshadowings of Jesus' activity and meaning in Old Testament rituals and events like the sacrifice of the lamb at Passover or the Day of Atonement where Israel's sins were forgiven. Tremper goes further, as I think we must. He sees everything. Everything in the Old Testament as, in some very real sense, a signpost to Jesus. Okay, Tramper, can we do a um, a rapid fire round with some Old Testament passages or stories? I want to throw them at you and I want you to tell me how on earth they point to Jesus in okay. your in, in your estimation, right? Here we go. The clock is ticking. Yeah. All right. I'm ready. Okay. <laughs> the Israelites wandering the desert and failing God for 40 years before entering the promised land. Jesus is the obedient son of God in contrast to the disobedient sons of God, as is demonstrated in the 40 days and 40 nights followed by the temptations, which he obey, which he resists when the Israelites, uh, 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 they succumb to them. Okay, I think I might have to give you that one. All right, here we go. Uh, (laughs) Joshua conquering the Canaanites. Surely there's no Jesus there. Uh, Jesus is actually the divine warrior who heightens and intensifies the warfare um, and directs it toward the spiritual powers and authority uh, but also will come back in the second coming to bring judgment against all human and spiritual evil. And the conquest is kind of a, uh, and the Old Testament violence toward human beings is a kind of preview of the final judgment. Hmm. The 150 poems or songs in the book of Psalms. I don't, I don't find many poems and songs on the lips of Jesus. Uh, yeah, well, I wrote, so I can't do all 150 now, but fortunately I wrote a commentary on the Psalms in the Tyndale Old Testament commentary series, where at the end of all 150, I talk about how Jesus is anticipated by this, whether it is a a metaphor of God, like Psalm 23, God is our shepherd, Jesus is our good shepherd, you know, all the kingship Psalms, the Messiah, it doesn't have to be quoted in the New Testament. So, so um, yeah, I've re- written extensively about it, uh, <laughs> but in particular in my Psalms commentary, I, I give a Christological reading of all 150 Psalms. Excellent. We'll, we'll read it from cover to cover in the show. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. What about my, uh, my Old Testament reading just this morning, just a, just a few hours ago before I uh, saw your lovely face, was 2 Kings chapter 17. And uh, it's just a litany of the terrible things the Israelites did and how Shamanasa, the king of Assyria, booted them out. What's that got to do with Jesus? Well, you know, I think this connects to the warrior theme we just talked about and God bringing judgment on his sinful people. And if you read the description of 
the sin of the Northern Kingdom at the time includes things like sacrificing their children and so forth, um, that, that it anticipates uh, Jesus coming as a judge at the, uh, at the end of the time, at the end of the days. Okay, final uh, in our uh, rapid-fire round, um, the, the depressing book of Ecclesiastes. Everything is meaningless and all that. <laughs> yeah, right. So this is the easiest one, <laughs> because only because I've written on Ecclesiastes for 30 years. But uh, So Romans 8, 18 and following talks about how God subjected the creation to frustration, right? That word in Greek, frustration, is mateotes, which is the word used to translate hevel um, in the book of Ecclesiastes, which is meaningless. So essentially, uh, and I wish I had a little bit more time to talk about it, the book of Ecclesiastes has two voices. Uh, the preacher, the teacher, Kohelet, is the one who's saying life is difficult and then you die. Everything is meaningless. The second wise man comes in at the end and says, you know what, my son, he's right. As long as you stay under the sun, um, life is meaningless. But rather than staying under the sun, fear God, obey the commandments, and live in the light of the future judgment. And so what I see Paul pointing us to in Romans 8, 18 and following is to say that um, Kohelet stayed under the sun. He's tried to find meaning in a fallen world. But Paul goes on to say that God subjected it, because I think that was subjected as a divine passive, um, in hope. And that hope is found in Jesus, who himself subjected himself to those things that most rendered life meaningless for Kohelet, especially death. Jesus died and was raised in order to give our lives meaning. Okay, I think I'm going to have to give you full points. <laughs> thank you, thank you. You get full points for the uh, rapid fire round. There isn't any part of the Old Testament that doesn't somehow point to Jesus. So does this mean the Old Testament teaches things about Jesus we can't learn from the New Testament? You know, that that's an interesting question. I And I, I've never thought about that from that perspective. And um, I'll continue thinking about it. But my initial response is, no, I don't think so. I do think the New Testament brings out more in the uh, than the Old Testament does. And a lot of Jesus in the Old Testament becomes most recognizable to us looking at it through the prism of the resurrection. Uh, but I still think that it is incredibly edifying and helpful uh, to to uh, see how Jesus is anticipated in the uh, Old Testament. and. And I would also say there's uh, more to the Trinity than just Jesus, of course. And we learn a lot about God, a uh, very rich um, uh, picture of God in the Old Testament as we just one um, thing, you know, the Malden metaphors 
of God, as you reflect on God as a shepherd, God as a king, God as a mother, God as a father, God as a warrior, you learn a lot about God in the Old Testament. That's all well and good. But there's a question I wanted to ask Tremper that has long niggled. Why don't our Jewish friends see Jesus in the Old Testament? What they call the Tanakh. I mean, it's their book, right? So are Christians doing something improper here, presuming to steal the Tanakh and say it's all about our Lord? That's sort of where we head after the break. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, corruption and conflict have plagued communities like Kindu for decades, and access to quality education as a result is scarce. Schools around Kindu, one of the poorest parts of the DRC, are often dilapidated. They lack basic essentials like books or even teachers. Anglican Aid is looking to change that. By making a tax-deductible donation to Anglican Aid, you can play a crucial role in providing the tools and resources necessary to transform children's lives. Your donation will help workers on the ground in the DRC to rebuild classrooms, supply materials for students, and offer comprehensive training for educators. Already, there's been incredible progress. Five schools have been renovated, with over 600 students enrolled and thriving. But there's still plenty to do. Please visit anglicanaid.org.au forward slash undeceptions to lend your support to an organisation Buff and I have long trusted. Help empower children to do what we frankly take for granted chase their dreams and build a brighter future for themselves and their communities. Go to anglicanaid.org.au forward slash undeceptions. Thank you. For Jews, at least throughout much of history, the Bible has not been at all about fall and redemption, but about how to live a faithful life in the ups and downs of the ongoing history of the people of Israel. The first 11 chapters of Genesis, from creation through Adam and down to Abraham, are a prologue to the history of Israel, rather than setting the main themes of the collection of books that follow. Christians have tended to treat all of the Old Testament as a kind of prophecy. The Psalms have often been read as predicting the Messiah, and the books of Moses, Genesis to Deuteronomy, have been mined for predictions. Jews, by contrast, tend to treat it all as a form of instruction in living a good and observant life. In other words, as Torah. The difference between the Christian scheme of fall and prophesied redemption on the one hand and the Jewish theme of providential guidance and instruction on the other, means that it is indeed almost as though they were two different collections. Moshe, Gosh and Gottstein summed the contrast up perfectly. For Christians, the Old Testament is about God, humanity and salvation. For Jews, the Bible is about God, people and land. Protestant Bible Scholarship, Anti-Semitism, Philo-Semitism and Anti-Judaism. 
Professor John Barton, Faculty of Theology and Religion, University of Oxford. What do you say to Jewish friends, indeed Jewish scholars, who might say that Christians are really perverting the Tanakh, the Old Testament, uh, to make it all point to Jesus, that this defies the text itself? Yeah, well, I would have to sit down with my Jewish friends and look at text after text to um, to um, justify my particular view on it. And, and it is true, though, that uh, we Christians do read the Old Testament through the prism of the New Testament, uh, and Jews read it through the prism of the um, of later Jewish writings, like the Tosefta, yeah, the Mishnah, the, Talmud, and the, the and Mishnah, so on, yeah. and so forth. I had a mm -hmm. very fascinating discussion with a uh, Jewish legal scholar from Emory about this, where we were both acknowledging that. Uh, so uh, on the one hand, it might be hard to give a kind of, and obviously there's not a kind of slam dunk argument that will convince every Jewish person, but um, because, because actually my own view is people uh, become Christians for more than just uh, rational arguments. It's other things like I would want to talk about how uh, the perspective of my religion makes broader sense of the world and so forth. Yeah, I mean, it just dawned on me um, that, I, I, I mean, I've taught in a Jewish studies department at Sydney University for over 10 years. Not that that's just dawned on me, but it's just dawned on me that one of the criticisms I've had from the Jewish scholars in that department um, about Christianity and why it's not a Jewish religion is that the uh, Tanakh and the Jewish tradition are very um, positive about this world, this creation, whereas Christianity is world denying. Mm. What do you make mm. of that? Because in their view, this is this is a breach. Yeah, well, I would agree that as Christians take that perspective, it is a breach. Um, I mean, we should remember that the creation is God's creation and that we need to be uh, very concerned about justice in this world, the care of our creation, um, and our present lives, as well as our future lives. So I, 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 I think that, um, on the other hand, for people who spend so much, Christians who spend so much time talking about this life and saying about what the Bible tells us about the future life, that it's pie in the sky, by and by, I say, no, that's also an important biblical teaching that actually should motivate us to live well in this world, but also to expect suffering and humiliation. And, uh, and, and, but the vision of the future should also motivate us to persist in our faith in this, in spite of our present suffering. This is probably the right place to say, let's press pause. I've got a five-minute Jesus for you. 
Christians have, as Tremper said, sometimes downplayed the goodness of creation. And often that goes hand in hand with distancing ourselves from the Old Testament. The reason seems pretty clear. The Old Testament is where all the creation narratives appear. And so much of the Old Testament story is set in the promised land, which is a kind of recapitulation of the Garden of Eden and a pointer to a new creation. I think the New Testament doctrine of the incarnation, of God taking on flesh in Jesus Christ, should also stress the importance of physical creation. But there's no doubt the Old Testament is the anchor for this view. And there were two early Christian movements that tried to dispense with this anchor, to cut themselves free from the Old Testament and its vision of a creator God. You hear a lot about the so-called Gnostic Gospels, those Gospels of the 2nd and 3rd centuries which sought to correct the earlier 1st century Gospels in our New Testament. I'm talking about the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Philip, and so on. The word Gnostic, by the way, refers to the secret gnosis, or knowledge, apparently revealed by Jesus in these Gospels. In short, they all say that Jesus came not from the Old Testament God, the God who got his hands grubby by being involved in physical creation. No, Jesus came from the higher being, one that has nothing to do with physicality. And once you learn the special teachings contained in these Gnostic Gospels, your spirit can be free from being trapped inside your physical body, and it will eventually merge with that highest being for eternity. And if that sounds a little bit like Hinduism, that's probably because there was plenty of Eastern influence in Gnosticism. But strongly allied to this denigration of physical creation was the complete rejection of the Old Testament. The Gnostic Christians, if you can even think of them as Christians, were dead against the Old Testament. They thought Jesus came to deliver us from the Old Testament, deliver us from the God of the Old Testament. These Gospels, quite unlike the earlier New Testament Gospels, were almost anti-Semitic. We're going to have to do a full-blown episode on the Gnostic Gospels one day. So many fun topics ahead. Another interesting movement in the second century, which might not get its own entire episode, was led by a Roman priest named Marcion. As part of his effort to reach the Roman world, he thought it was best to jettison the Jewishness of Christianity, and in particular, the Old Testament. So he collected his own canon, his own collection of authoritative books, And, of course, it had no Old Testament. He also deleted most of the Gospels, except for Luke. And even then, he edited that so it was a little less Jewish. He did love the letters of Paul, though, especially the bits that seemed to draw a contrast between the Jewish law and the Christian Gospel. It was a much simpler version of Christianity this Marcionite Christianity. It was much easier to sell, certainly in the Roman world. And the movement Marcion founded lasted a century or more after he was kicked out of the Church of Rome in the 140s AD. But those who debated him pointed out that you could hardly understand the life, death and resurrection of Jesus 
apart from the Old Testament. And they showed that even the bits of the New Testament Marcion retained, like in Paul, Christ is portrayed not as the contradiction of the Old Testament, but as its completion. It was Paul, after all, who said in the book of Romans, chapters 3 and 4, Do we then nullify the Jewish law by this Christian faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? What does Scripture say? He means Old Testament Scripture. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. King David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. It's a fabulous passage. The Christian gospel, said Paul, and all of the first Jewish Christians, is nothing other than the fulfillment of the promises of God in the Old Testament. Or as Jesus himself put most succinctly in Luke chapter 24, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. There are Gnostic and Marcionite tendencies today. People who want to dispense with the Old Testament and have a simpler Christianity. But frankly, when you chuck out the Old Testament, you not only chuck out a good creator of a good creation, you chuck out Jesus himself. You can press play now. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, that's the rich and melodious voice of actor David Suchet, taken from his reading of the New International Version of the Bible. He's not just a great actor, my darling buff loves Poirot, but he's also a gifted voice actor, and he strikes just the right tone here of authority and kindness as God speaks to Moses from the burning bush and reveals his personal name, I Am. That phrase, I am, ended up laden with profound meaning for the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. It was like the in secret between the Lord of the universe and the chosen people. So when Jesus is recorded in the New Testament as taking it for himself, it was a scandal. Jesus spoke to the woman at the well we heard about earlier. I, the one speaking to you, I am. And to Jews challenging him in the Jerusalem temple in the same gospel, we have, Very truly I tell you, before Abraham was born, that's 1800 BC, I am, said Jesus. 
For some, this way of reading things is one of the climactic connecting themes of the Old and New Testaments. It's where the identity of the Old Testament creator becomes one with the identity of Jesus. But for others, that explanation is just a little too quick. It sidesteps the important task of pausing and trying to understand what an Old Testament passage, like the one we just heard, meant in its original setting to its original hearers, before rushing simply to say, Jesus. Tremper sort of has a middle view. I have a final question for you, Tremper. Uh, Suppose we've got some doubting listeners who, after hearing you, are willing to give the Old Testament a try. Can you give us a few bits of the Old Testament uh, you'd especially recommend that we read and a few tips for reading them? Yeah, so um, I don't know. I It depends on the person, but I would say that um, I would read uh, slowly through the narrative portion, starting with Genesis, and and warn you that you're going to run into some rough spots. And then maybe a psalm and a bit of Proverbs or a wisdom book and a bit of prophecy. Personally, I, my, my problem answering that is I think it's also fascinating and interesting, <laughs> but you may need help, okay? First of all, the first thing get a really readable, accurate translation, whether it's the NIV or the uh, New Living Translation, which I'm one of the senior translators of, um, or, or there are others as well, but those are two I would recommend. Don't re- try to read in the King James Version. Um, it's, it was readable back in the 17th century, all right? And then I would also say get a good study Bible. Uh, Well, first of all, just read through it. You're going to have a lot of questions when you go through it first, but try to get the big picture. So those are some some suggestions. Tremper Longman, thank you so (laughs) much for your time today. Uh, Thank you, John. Great to see you again. If you're looking for an easy but meaningful gift for a loved one, you could give them a subscription to Undeceptions Plus. They'll get all the extras, and if you sign them up for a full year, they'll get an Undeceptions t-shirt too. We've got some great stuff planned for our Undeceivers in 2023. So head to undeceptions.com forward slash plus to give a gift subscription. And while you're there, you might consider making a donation to help the work of Underceptions and to ensure that we can do all those great things and more in 2023. You can click on the donate button on our website. I'm really grateful for your support. Next episode, we've got two physicists at the very top of their field who reckon that the more we learn about the world, the more we learn how it operates under elegant laws. And it's the beauty they find in their scientific quests that keeps them seeking. See ya.
Underceptions is hosted by me, John Dixon, produced by Kaylee Payne and directed by Mark Hadley. Sophie Hawkshaw is on socials and membership. Alastair Belling is our writer and researcher. Siobhan McGuinness is our online librarian. And Lindy Leveston remains my wonderful assistant. Editing by Richard Humwee. And special thanks to our series sponsor, Zondervan Academic, for making this Underception possible. Underceptions is the flagship podcast of Underceptions.com. Letting the truth out. Perceptions Podcast. <laughs>